my friends in Christ, each year on this final Sunday of the church's year, we celebrate the wonderful feast of Christ the King. And each year, even as we pull out all the stops with glorious music, flowers, bells, candles, and clouds of incense, we get a none too gentle reminder not to get too carried away with all the trappings of royalty. The reminder invariably comes in the scripture readings. It came in the reading from the second book of Kings where we met the young King David, a king minus any majesty, a king who was more shepherd of the flock than mighty ruler. The reminder also came, of course, in the reading from Luke's gospel where the kingship of Jesus was a matter of mockery and with good reason. For what kind of king hangs helplessly dying on a cross between a couple of common criminals. Last month, when I was privileged to attend the canonization of Cardinal Newman in St. Peter's Square, from my seat in the huge crowd, I could see various dignitaries who were in attendance. Prominent among them, and not so far from where I was sitting, was Prince Charles, who was representing his mother, the Queen. A very meaningful ecumenical gesture, I thought. But of course, the most prominent dignitary at the Mass that morning was Pope Francis himself. But thanks to the way he has let go the regal trappings of the papal office, there wasn't a hint of royalty about Pope Francis. This got me to thinking how beautifully he embodies the kind of kingship Jesus stands for. Humble, servant kingship. Pope Francis never plays the royalty card. He calls that, and I quote, the leprosy of the papacy. With Pope Francis, it's never about pomp or privilege. It's about the poor and the peripheries. They are his priority, and of course, they should be the church's priority as well. Every leader in the church, and I include myself, should take a chapter from his book, never taking ourselves too seriously, finding ways to walk on the same ground as the people we serve. This Feast of Christ the King is not very old on the church's calendar. The church got by for nearly two millennia without such a feast. It wasn't until the years between the First and Second World Wars that Pope Pius XI put it on the church's calendar for very good reason. Not unlike today, not unlike today, various authoritarian and anti-democratic movements were on the rise around the world. Fascism in Italy, National Socialism in Germany, communism in the Soviet Union. As a counterpoint to these nationalistic movements led by dictators with neither conscience nor constituents, power mongers accountable only to themselves, the Pope raised up the figure of a most likely kind of leader, Jesus Christ. A king, yes, but a king without wealth or weapons, other than truth and love and no territorial ambitions other than human hearts. It is this servant king, the suffering, crucified Christ of today's gospel, whom we honor today 
and every day as our king. But it's risky, this business of kingship. At its worst, throughout our long history, whenever the church has lost sight of just what sort of king Christ is, it has gotten seduced by the pretensions of power and the trappings of royalty. Or to use Pope Francis' very telling expression, the church has become self-referential, inward-looking, self-absorbed, caught up with itself, its power, its prerogatives. The result? In turning away from the humble ways of Jesus, the church has too often taken on the tactics of the very authoritarian movements that the Feast of Christ the King is meant to counteract. A far, far cry from Jesus, who demonstrated his authority not by edicts and pronouncements or power plays, but by kneeling before his disciples and washing their feet. My friends, it's important for us to be clear by what we mean and what we don't mean when we call Christ our King. Over the Sundays of this past year, we have moved steadily, chapter by chapter, through Luke's Gospel, and we have met there a Christ who was quite, quite surprising, not only for what he said, but more importantly, for what he did. Surprising, too, for the company he kept. In fact, if we would follow this Christ, this King, I suggest that a good place to start would be to look at the company he kept. Here's a rundown of some of his company, taken right from the pages of Luke's Gospel. They are quite a bunch. I think you will agree. The lowly shepherds of the Bethlehem manger. The poor, the hungry, the mourning of the Beatitudes. The unlettered fishermen who were his inner circle. The sinful woman who crashed a dinner party to wash and anoint his feet. The poor woman with a lingering hemorrhage who wanted only to touch the hem of his garment. The lepers who kept calling after him, Master, have pity on us. The cheating tax collector Zacchaeus with whom Jesus insisted on having dinner. And then, of course, the dying thief of today's gospel. Those, my friends, are the company of Christ the King, his royal retinue, if you will. We have met them all this past year, Sunday after Sunday, and each of them should be a reminder to us, a powerful reminder that if Jesus is a king, he is a king like no other. For what king worth his salt would waste his time with that long list of losers? May our celebration of this wonderful but potentially misleading feast remind us not only of what sort of king Christ is, but also of what his kind of kingship means for us and for the company we keep.